So today we continue in our sermon series called Explore God. If you guys have questions throughout the series, you can text them to that, and we'll try our best to answer them to the best of our ability. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, there are some available on the tables in the back. Of course, you can use your digital device. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 and on. And we're going to approach this question, can Christians be intellectuals? And the inverse, can intellectuals be Christians? But before we do that... uh, wanted to say that right now, um, as, I was, well, as I was preparing for this, one of the things I kept thinking back to were uh, the teachers that invested in me uh, growing up, not only in elementary school, uh, all the way up through high school, but also in uh, you know, post-high school education. I was just thinking through, like, like chemistry was my favorite class. I was not good at it, uh, but there was always a chance something was going to blow up, and so it kept things interesting. And uh, what we're going to do, uh, just real quick, is we're going to take a minute and we're going to pray. So regardless of where you're at, um, how, you, how you're feeling right now, what, you, what, you, what your perspective is uh, on the walkout and Red for Ed and things like that, um, I certainly have a perspective. If you'd like to know it, you can um, ask me and I will gracefully dodge your questions because what I'm here to do is lead us uh, as a church and not solve all your problems. Um, but I know this, that we need prayer. And our teachers need prayer, our community needs prayer, and our leaders need prayer. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, uh, if you're a praying person, if you would join me, uh, join with me right now as we pray. If you're not a praying person, if you would just uh, sit there quietly. Here we go. Lord Jesus, over the last couple, uh, just the last week and and the weeks leading up to, Lord, uh, it's been tense in our community. There's been a ton of frustration and anxiety and fear and argument and now anger and sometimes resentment. Um, And so, Lord, we pray right now for your peace to be on this community. We pray specifically now for our teachers. You would bless them and keep them, Lord, for uh, those who serve as nurses, for those who serve in security, for those who serve in cafeteria and food prep, for the janitorial staff, for the school administrators, coaches. Lord, we pray for your blessing to be upon them. Specifically, Lord, we pray, since it's our district, we pray for PVUSD, that you would bless them and keep them. Uh, There is um, just a ton of opportunity for confusion and fear and anxiety, and so, Lord, we pray again for your blessing. Pray for your provision. We pray for the students, Lord, just even just in our district alone, tens of thousands of students impacted by this, and I know that it pains uh, the teachers that I know personally. I know it's just, it's just an immense amount of weight. They know that their, uh, their actions impact these students, and so, Lord, uh, pray for the students that you would um, bless them and keep them as well. For the parents, um, as they're having, many of them are having to scramble. Lord, I pray also, just specifically, and, and Lord, I don't know how to articulate this other than this way. Lord, I pray for the working poor for whom this is just devastating, uh, those who, don't, who work and don't get time off, uh, paid time off of work, uh, for those uh, in our community who are single-parent homes who uh, this is a great burden. Lord, I pray for your provision, your peace to be upon them, that you would provide uh, for opportunities for their kids to be taken care of while they uh, work and serve. Lord, we pray for our leadership. Uh, we pray for Superintendent Douglas. We pray for Governor Ducey and our state legislature as they uh, navigate this. Lord, we pray for your wisdom to be upon this, that they might uh, seek you in all of this. Lord, we turn to you knowing that you love us and you're powerful enough to bring these things about. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 
I also wanted to say, uh, and I, I mentioned this in the prayer, there are many in our community, especially working poor, for whom this, uh, just the days off of school was a, a, just a huge burden and a ton of anxiety. And I just wanted to say thanks to Melinda and the Adventure Kids team. They scrambled on Thursday and Friday to be able to provide childcare uh, for many kids in our community. Uh, many of them um, came here and spent all day here uh, with other people's kids. Have you ever met other people's kids? <laughs> You ever met my kids? Um, and they just did a huge service to the community. Can we say thank you to them for uh, their sacrifice? Thank you. We're thinking about teachers, and we're thinking about the impact that teachers have on us. And teachers teach, right? Uh, it's in their very job, uh, it's in the, their title, teacher. And one of the things that good teachers teach is how to think and how to reason and how to investigate and how to learn. And today, uh, we talk about part of that, namely how our intellect interweaves with our faith. And we ask it in this way, can a Christian be an intellectual or can an intellectual be a Christian? And one of the reasons why we're asking this question is there is a current cultural phenomenon right now where the idea of, uh, if I can use it this way, an orthodox Christian or what commonly gets used kind of out there in the wild as evangelical Christians, there is this idea that orthodox Christianity is somehow against or antithetical to uh, science, reason, and logic. And I'm not sure where that came from. I know that there's some people who have acted in boneheaded ways and said boneheaded things that have led a lot of people to believe, you know, don't ask questions, it's not okay to ask questions. But, but what I wanna lean into today is to answer this question, can intellectuals be Christians? Um, I think it's important for us to answer, and for those of us that follow after Jesus, I know not all of us do, but for those of us who follow after Jesus, we, we gotta kinda watch and make sure that we are not giving the wrong impression, that somehow faith leads to not thinking critically. Uh, rather, I'm gonna argue today that uh, critical thinking is a central component to faith. Um, and we also gotta watch, okay, <clears throat> for those of you that are non-Christians, I'm gonna yell at the Christians for a minute, so good job being here today, you're gonna love this. Um, Christians. There's three of them. Okay, so there is. Great. Christians. Watch what you say, for whatever you say is representing Christ, his teaching, the church, the whole deal. So if you are prone to bumper sticker Facebook posts or Twitter posts, that might not give the whole picture of what Christ teaches, please beware that your words and your actions represent to the whole world Christianity. And you will either give a good uh, presentation or a distorted presentation. Nonetheless, you are presenting Christianity to the world. So just watch the words, make sure that you're thinking critically and carefully and thoughtfully and lovingly. Done. Paul in Acts chapter 17 is in a place called Athens. Athens is the center of thought for the Roman Empire. So it's not the center of military power or economic power, but it still is, at this point in time of the writing of Acts 17, it still is the center of thought in uh, the Roman Empire. And one of the things that we're gonna see in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and on, are three things. Number one, we're gonna see the marketplace of ideas. 
Number two, the hungering dark. And I stole that from Beekner, who's an old school preacher. The hungering dark. And three, the imminent divine. Number one, the marketplace of ideas. Number two, the hungering dark. Number three, the imminent divine. Are you ready? Oh, God, just every week. We're going to do a sermon every week. When you come here, after the singing, there's probably going to be a sermon. And so if I ask, are you ready? You should definitely be ready. So are you ready? Here we go. We're going to put it up on the screen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read portions of it. I'm going to comment as we go along. We're going to do a little Bible study together as we think about how it is that our intellect interweaves with our faith. Here we go. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in, what's the name of the town? Athens, which was the center of thought. Did you know that? It was the center of thought in the Roman Empire. In Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. You see it right there, the full of idols. Excellent. Pause. Immediately, many of us think, how regressive, how stupid, how old school that they would have idols. We intellectuals, we moderns, we certainly don't have any idols. We certainly don't have any monuments to idols. In fact, if you live south of here, you passed by uh, a, a decaying uh, idol, a shrine, in fact. I don't know if you saw it. At Cactus and Tatum, there is a giant monument to the god, the idol of consumerism. It's called PV Mall. <laughs> now, I know that if you've been there recently, it's only been to walk around in the air conditioning to get your steps in. Or to the vape store. I'm not sure where you're at with all that. But... Come on, you mean to tell me we don't have idols? Of course we have idols. We're no different than these. See, we're, we're chronological snobs. We think simply because they formed a shrine out of something and we don't do exactly that way anymore that we're not idolaters. Absolutely, we're idolaters. We make idols out of almost anything these days. And so you have a world, uh, a city full of idols. And those idols are shrines, they're embodiments, they're incarnations of worldviews. The ways that we view the world. And there's three primary worldviews, at least the way I understand it. There's three primary ways, excuse me, that you can view the world. Number one, this is all a dream. One day we're going to wake up. This is all a dream, and one day we're going to wake up. Many of what we categorize as Eastern religion, or some people would call it New Age, it lends itself to this idea that all of this is a vision or a dream. Number two, the other worldview, the other primary worldview is this. The only thing, Pastor Matt said it last week, the worldview that the only thing that matters is matter, the material stuff of the universe. The only thing that exists, the only thing that's real, is matter, the material universe. Then there's a third worldview, namely this, that matter does matter, matter does matter, but there is a force behind the matter. There's an animating force underneath the cosmos. There is some sort of divine thing or entity that's out there that's holding all of the matter together. So those are the three views. Number one, it's all a dream. One day, we're going to wake up. Number two, the only thing that matters is matter. And then the third view is matter does matter, but there's something underneath the matter. There's a divine principle, a divine spark, something holding the cosmos together. And I did want to say this, too. This, okay, hmm. This idea that, and even in our speech, we, we say things like this, faith and science. And what does that give the impression of? That they're somehow like, right? Like they're somehow fighting against one another. They're not fighting against one another. In fact, I would argue that for those of us that follow after Jesus, 
One ought to never, ever, 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 ever be afraid of scientific pursuits and discovery. Rather, one, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should welcome in the scientific discoveries that all of our uh, scientists are engaging in because it speaks to the glory of God. We just sang about the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God. When our scientific brothers and sisters, I know many of you are here today, when there's a new discovery at the molecular level or the astronomic level, it speaks to the glory of God. And as a follower of Christ, we should say, yes, give us more, please. I want to know more about the universe, not less. And by the way, for those of you that operate in the sciences, Jesus is not afraid of your discovery. And I know that some followers of Jesus have done boneheaded things and made you feel like crap. And I can't apologize for that because I didn't do it, but if I could, I would. That's, it's silliness. And there are many people who are, who are just... They're just, they're just new in their faith or they're misunderstanding how the Bible teaches or how the Bible speaks to a specific issue and they just may be misapplying it. And so I just want to say, for those of us that operate within the sciences, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Keep doing it. Because it helps us as a community, as a people, and as a worshiping community. Okay, I'm done with that. Full of idols, right? Matter matters. There's a force behind the matter. And uh, the Greeks, the Athenians, believed that there is matter, there's a material universe, but there's some sort of divine principle, divine spark, something holding the universe, some impersonal being holding the universe together. We can uh, go on in verse 17, it says this, so he, so you guys see it up there, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there, the marketplace. So don't think grocery store. The marketplace was the central hub of this community. So it was basically where you got your entertainment, it was where you did your shopping, it was where you heard the latest news, and it was where you engaged in the latest gossip, unless you were a Christian because gossip is a sin. So it's basically, when you hear marketplace, this is Amazon, Netflix, Twitter, and Facebook combined. Okay, it's the central hub of the Athenian culture, which was, at the time, in fact, the center of thought in the Roman Empire. Did you know that? Yeah, it's the center of thought in the Roman Empire. So here, the marketplace of ideas that Paul is engaging in is the center of thought in the center of thought of the Roman Empire. And you'll notice what Paul does, verse 17. What is the action that he engaged in? Did he do an artistic presentation? No. Did he do some sort of uh, impassioned plea? No, although I'm sure he was, sure he was passionate. It says that he reasoned with them. Did you guys catch that? So one of the questions I have for you is this, and you've got to figure this out on your own. Is Christianity reasonable? Is it reasonable? Can you reason with Christianity? I hope you will. And in this marketplace of ideas, you have all of these views laid out for you. And skepticism, one of the, uh, one of the Greek views, would have run rampant. And I would argue that for those of us that are followers of Jesus, skepticism is good and healthy, and you should be skeptical. In fact, uh, preceding this text, one of the things that you see is Paul goes to a place called Berea, and he begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to uh, what's called the Bereans, the group of people who lived in Berea. Very good. And uh, it says that they tested the things that he said against the scripture. What's that? That's skepticism. Skepticism is not inherently negative. It's going I don't know about that. Are you sure about that? Let's reason together and find an answer. 
In fact, Flannery O'Connor, she was an author in the early 1900s. Uh, she writes this, skepticism will keep you free. Skepticism will keep you free. Not free to do anything that you please, but free to be formed by something larger than your own intellect or the intellects of those around you. Skepticism will keep you free, but not free to do anything you please. Skepticism will keep you free to be formed by something larger than your own intellect or the intellects of those around you. Let me push in on this. I think she's brilliant. What she's saying is this. The skepticism that you apply to others, have you applied it to yourself? Because if you apply the same degree of skepticism that you apply to others as you apply to yourself, you will be free then to be formed by something exponentially larger than your own self. And so skepticism is a healthy trait. And there are many people who think, you know, Christianity, it, it just answers all the questions. It's the easy way out. Christianity is the easy way out. We have all these problems in the universe, and Christianity is just a, it's just a, it's just a shortcut. It's just an easy way out. And if you're there, let me just say, are you kidding me, bro? Like, Jesus straight up says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Does that sound to you like an easy way out? 95% of the time when I read Jesus' commands to me, the last thing I'm thinking is, this sounds easy. And so we must be skeptical not only of our criticism, uh, of other views, but also our critiques of those views and our own views. And here, let me just push in one final time. Um, for those of us that are Christians, God is fundamentally not threatened by your questions. Like, God is not scared going, I hope they don't ask me that. Oh my goodness, oh, what if they talk about, oh, how old's the earth, oh no! God is not threatened by your questions. In fact, I would argue that the deeper, harder questions, the, the, the deeper the question, the more difficult the question, the more honoring it is to God because what it's saying is in the act of asking the question, you are basically saying, I think you might be capable of answering this. God is not threatened by your questions. And so Paul here is talking to a bunch of people engaging in the marketplace of ideas. And in verse 18, it goes on. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who I know you all know, but I'll just remind myself here, that the Epicureans believed that there was an impersonal force behind the universe. There's just something out there that's holding the universe together. And the Stoics, and if you uh, saw the... Um, uh, the, the philosophical great, uh, probably one of the greatest movies of our time, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You, you know that Socrates, um, some call him Socrates, but Socrates, um, he was the, one of the key leaders in the view called the Stoic view, or the Stoic uh, philosophers. And Stoicism said, you know, in order to reach harmony with the universe, you have to disengage your emotions. And either way, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they both believed that there was an impersonal force out somewhere in the universe, not a person, not a personal force, but just a force in the universe that brought harmony and uh, order. It goes on in verse 18. Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because, uh, oh, excuse me, I gotta, I gotta rewind a little bit. Uh, some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Many of you are asking this question right now. I see See what I did there, a little 
little Bible funny for everybody to enjoy. Okay, so uh, I don't think Paul was an ignorant show-off, but let me say this. I do think there's a lot of people who are ignorant show-offs who in the name of Jesus are out there giving you a distorted view of Christianity. So if you're not a Christian and you're rejecting Christianity or you're in the process of rejecting Christianity, I want to ask you to do uh, do me a solid. Would you have the intellectual integrity to make sure that the thing that you are rejecting is actual Christianity, is actually what Christ taught. Make sure that what you're rejecting is actually Christ and not some distorted view of what Christianity is. It's easy for me to turn on the news and hear someone who is a Christian do some boneheaded thing and for me to discount it, but there's no intellectual integrity there. Will you have the intellectual integrity that chase this to its logical conclusion, not looking at the outliers, not looking at those who distort Christianity, rather looking at Christianity itself? Please, I just plead with you to have the intellectual integrity to pursue Christianity to its natural conclusion by looking primarily at Jesus, not people who use Jesus' name. What was those things? There was 10 of them. They were on tablets. Uh, Charlton Heston brought them down. Um, What was the 10, uh, 10 commandments? One of them was do not use the Lord's name in vain. And there are many people today who are, uh, who, are, who are proclaiming a distorted view of Christianity and they're using the Lord's name in vain. So for those of us that are Christians, I'd strongly encourage you, don't do that. For the implications of it will go on for generations. In fact, uh, I'm not recommending this band, so parents of teenagers look me in the eyeballs. I'm not recommending this band, but last week I listened to an album by a band called A Perfect Circle. It's led by a dude named Maynard James Keenan who started the band called Tool, also a band. Parents of teenagers, I'm not recommending, so you have all the authority to tell your kids not to listen to it. However, Perfect Circle, one of the songs, actually a few of the songs, one of the things that Maynard does, who's outspokenly not a Christian, is he gives a critique of the church. One of the things we know about his story is that he has been hurt by people. He has been abused when he was a child by people who are in leadership in church organizations. And in one of their songs, it goes like this. You're talking like Jesus. Try walking like Jesus. Talk, talk, talk. But are you walking like Jesus? A prophetic word from a man who's been hurt by someone who is using the Lord's name in vain, at least in my perspective. He goes on to say, others replied, uh, he seems to be a preacher of four indeedies because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the what? I'm gonna try that one more time. Jesus and the what? Okay. Christianity is the most, at least to my understanding of how things work in the universe, Christianity is the most falsifiable worldview. Christianity is the most falsifiable worldview. When you go, when you're thinking about things, one of, the, uh, one of the qualities that you're looking for in an idea is, could this be falsified? How do I know, how could I prove that this isn't true? And I mean to tell you today, Christianity is the most falsifiable of all the worldviews because it's centered around a historical thing that actually happened in an actual place and an actual time. In fact, if you read the Gospels, one of the things that you might find to be intriguing is this, that the very center of Christianity is an act in which you have given the exact time and location. All you need to do to disprove Christianity is disprove the resurrection. In fact, Paul, the author, uh, the, uh, the, the dude that we're talking about here in Acts, he authored uh, some letters. One of them was to a church in Corinth in which he said, if there is no resurrection, we're all stupid and this is a waste of time. 
Christianity is vulnerable of all the religions because it says if you can disprove this one historical moment, the whole thing crumbles. And so for those of us right now who are still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, follow the dots to the resurrection and then all you need to do to disown Christ, to disprove all of it is disprove the resurrection. That's all you need to do. Now I want to tell you, I haven't been able to do it. In fact, I've staked my life on the discovery that the resurrection actually happened. When we gather every Sunday, uh, we call it like the Lord's Day, and especially on Easter Sunday, one of the things we celebrate is the historical fact of the resurrection. This isn't tradition for us. This isn't good moral teachings. What we're singing about, completely falsifiable. If you can show that the resurrection did not happen, the whole thing crumbles. Now, some of us say, well, miracles don't happen. You're right until they do. And that's the mind-blowing thing. That's why we call them miracles, not things that tend to usually happen. Again, this gets back to your worldview, right? If you believe that the only thing that exists is matter, of course, you have to say, you have to say, based on your worldview, a man cannot rise from the dead. But if you believe that there is a force behind the universe that exists outside some sort of divine entity, then you might be given to the opportunity to believe a, a miracle could happen, a man could rise from the dead. Might, might could happen. Spoiler alert, it did. Okay. We'll go on. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was a big, big place where they all gathered, and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are representing, because... What you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, let's get real for a minute. One of the things that it says in the text is that all these Athenians, all they did all day was sit around and entertain new ideas. What was the motivating factor? What was operating inside of them that caused them to sit around and philosophize all day? It could be they had nothing better to do, but of course, these are very difficult questions. What I would argue is what Beekner argues, who's a minister from uh, uh, the 1900s, is that there is within inside of each one of us a hungering dark. He calls it the hungering dark. Something within us, and I know you felt it. Um, as a culture, we have a propensity to get drunk after funerals. Why do we get drunk after funerals? For many of us, it's because we don't want to face the hungering dark. The hungering dark is that longing inside of you, that deep pit within you that looks your own mortality in the face and is forced in that moment to deal with it. But for some of us, the darkness is threatening to consume us. The hungering dark. Luke Ferry, who wrote the book, A Brief History of Thought, great book, would highly recommend it. It helps give, uh, he's not a believer, but he does give an excellent view of how Christian thought fits into all of the philosophies. He says this, that it's the combination of mortality and our awareness of mortality that contains all the questions of philosophy. Different than the animals, uh, let me ask you this. <clears throat> Have you ever seen a wombat with a day planner? Anybody? No. Nope. Haven't seen a wombat with a day planner. Uh, one of the things that separates us from the animals is we plan. Uh, we think in terms of, I'm going to do something tomorrow. I'm going to do something next. There's something later that I'm going to do. And what that speaks to is we recognize that we exist within time, but we also know 
that there will come a year where we will not finish the day planner. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the... Can we take a note of everyone who just quoted that? Because anyone who watches soap operas needs to have a... We're going to have a talk about that next week. Our own mortality, the hungering dark, it's screaming at you. You are finite, and now what will you do? All philosophy starts with these questions. Is there anything after death, and what do I do with the time I've got now? Every worldview seeks to answer those questions. And for many of us, God seems, the answer to that for many of us seems so distant. For many of us, the hungering dark is consuming us. For many of us, we're furious with a God that we're not sure exists. For many of us, we are in the midst of deep pain and suffering. And by the way, I would strongly encourage you to join us next week uh, as we cover that topic, as uh, Pastor John covers the topic, where is God in suffering? There are many of us there. And God seems distant and cold and impersonal. And so Paul says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by human hands. So your critique of these shrines is right. God cannot live in shrines. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he made every nationality to live over the whole earth as he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And check this out. He did this so that they, meaning people, might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. We are seeking God. Are you seeking God? Are you reaching out saying, are you there? Are you looking the hungering dark in the eye and saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach out and see what I can touch. I'm gonna see if there's a God there. I'm gonna see if there's, if there's some sort of force, some sort of animating principle behind the universe. If, if there's more than just matter, I'm gonna reach and I'm gonna try to find. Perhaps some of us are there reaching and trying to grasp onto whatever it is that we can find. And then Paul pushes it. Check this out. Though he, what's that last line say? Though he is not far from each one of us. Do you see that? So here we are as people, and God has made us in such a way that we look at the created order and we say, okay, there's some sort of force behind the universe, and I'm gonna reach out and I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to grab hold of that force. For many of us, it's our suffering or despair that's leading us there. For others, it's our curiosity and our discovery. And this is where Christianity distinguishes itself from all other worldviews. Though all of us are seeking and reaching, Christianity says God is not far from you. In fact, the force behind the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. The power behind the universe is a person that the God of the universe took on matter and became graspable. God has allowed himself to be taken hold of in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
This is what Paul is saying. All of us are longing, we're grasping, and here is Jesus. Touchable, huggable, graspable. But the story doesn't end there. He entered into this world humbly and tenderly, saying things like, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. He became graspable. And in order to become graspable, he became killable. In order to become graspable, not only do we have an opportunity to grasp hold of our God, but those who had killed him grasped the hold and bound him and crucified him. In order for him to be knowable, imminent, present with us, he became killable. This is what Paul is saying when he talks about the good news of the resurrection at the top of the order. Are you grasping? Will you allow yourself to be grasped by the God of the universe? How is it that we do that? How is it that we grasp hold of our God, the force behind the universe, become flesh? He says in verse 30, and we can go to the next slide. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands people everywhere to repent. That means to turn, turn from my sin and turn towards God. What we need to do is stop grasping at created things, but rather turn our grasp towards our creator, to repent from our sin and turn towards God. He goes on to say in verse 31, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And then finally it says this, and he has provided proof of this to everyone. TV time out. Do you remember when we said that Christianity is the most vulnerable and falsifiable of all the worldviews because it centers around one fact, one historical chronological fact, one fact that you could literally go to the exact GPS coordinates that we claim that we understand it to have happened at. You remember that? Here we go. Paul is pushing it. He says he has provided, God has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him, that is Christ, from the dead to take hold of the animating force behind the universe, to take hold of that which binds all things together is to take hold of Jesus. And to take hold of Jesus, we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. My question to you today is this, is have you followed, have you pursued this to its natural end? It will end in two ways for you. Number one, Christ is all or Christ is nothing just a myth, just a silly tale we tell. Or Christ is the myth become flesh and reality, which makes him all, everything there is. Friends, for those of us that are Christians, I want to tell you that's why we sing to him. That's why we pray. That's why we do things like serve. That's why we try to love our enemies to the best of our capacity. That's why, if you look around this room, we're all from all sorts of different backgrounds, socioeconomically, racially, politically. There's only one force in the universe that combines us all together, and it's not an impersonal force. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ, him crucified, dead, buried, and risen. Have you taken hold of God? He longs to take hold of you. Repent and believe in the gospel.